other questions at this time. We are interested in your comments, so you can contact us at news at weru.org. Please put democracy forum in the subject line. This is the sixth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is protest good citizenship at work we'll talk about whether protests are a legitimate if not necessary form of civic participation are protests good citizenship or are they civil disorder is protesting effective in changing public policy what's the difference between protest and insurrection are nonviolent actions more effective than those that involve violence? What different forms can these actions take? Demonstrations, strikes, riots, occupation, boycotts, divestment, disengagement. And what are some examples where protest movements actually succeeded in accomplishing the change they um, aspire to? This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum today, and let me introduce our guests. Douglas Allen is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at the University of Maine, author of the 2019 book, Gandhi After 9-11, Creative Nonviolence and Sustainability, and also co-advisor of the Maine Peace Action Committee. Welcome, Doug. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. And Erica Chenoweth is the Frank Stanton Professor of First Amendment of the First Amendment at the Harvard Kennedy School, a Susan S. and Kenneth L. Wallach Professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies, and author of the new book, Civil Resistance, What Everyone Needs to Know. We're so pleased to have you with us too, Erica. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. In the aftermath of the January 16th insurrection and thinking about some of the violence that accompanied the BLM demonstrations of the last few years, some of us are wondering about the effectiveness and legitimacy of street demonstrations as a tool for citizen advocacy. While some would like to characterize these street demonstrations as hooliganism or a threat to civil order, um, think the silent majority and the marginalizing of Vietnam War protesters, some at the same time are making the case that protests are an essential tool for democratic self-engagement and pro-democracy reforms. That is, protests as good good citizenship, as citizen advocacy, as important as voting. We're going to present the arguments on that side of the equation today that protests are uh, citizen engagement in action. So we're going to implore, explore some of those ideas on our show today. And Erica, I'd like you to kick us off if you wouldn't mind. What's the difference between protest and insurrection? How does one find the line of legitimacy um, in the eye of the beholder? Or what would you say about that? Put it in context. Well, thanks for starting us off with such an easy question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so uh, here's what I think. Protest is um, and, and street demonstrations, as you've been referring to it, um, are a, a tactic in which, um, you know, people um, gather in, in large groups and um, use their physical bodies to make a symbolic demonstration uh, about something. And and uh, it, it's it's um, as as old as humanity itself, uh, as a technique for people expressing their views. Uh, it's constitutionally protected in the United States. It's protected under um, customary international law and even um, uh, uh, legal legalized international law in the UN uh, Declaration of Human Rights and, and such. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's a, a near constant feature of political life in the United States and, and always has been before the United States was uh, its own country and before um, people even uh, uh, from, from European countries came to the United States um, when it was practiced by uh, many different indigenous groups as well. Um, and, and in terms of insurrection Insurrection is sort of a category of, uh, of uh, a political uprising in which um, there is a swift effort to overthrow an existing system, usually using force. Um, and so, you know, th- these are kind of separate uh, categories of events. Of course, in reality, um, we often see 
um, protests surrounding insurrections um, and protest movements sometimes escalating into insurrections um, and insurrections demobilizing and being replaced by protest movements. Um, there, there's a very broad repertoire of, of tactics um, and experiences that are reflected in our society today. But, um, but the far more common um, uh, form of, of political dissent is, of course, political. Uh, Erica, your audio clipped out on us there for a second. Looks like you're muted. That's it. I, I finished my comments. So repeat Sorry the end of the, repeat the, the yeah, we, repeat the last part of that last sentence. We, we did miss that. Yeah. So I was just saying um, political protest is a much more common form of political dissent uh, than insurrection, which is episodic and, and much rarer. So, Doug, what would you like to add to the definition, protest, insurrection, legitimacy, illegitimacy, if you care to go that far? Well, let me just uh, try to clarify a little bit of my understanding of protest and then relate it to ins insurrection. So uh, I think protest, it's a very general, vague term. It, uh, it's always oppositional. It's a statement or an action expressing opposition to something, that you're against something, that you're protesting. And in terms of all your introductory questions, I always have to contextualize protest. Uh, and in terms of real case, real live case uh, experiences, is, is it necessary or unnecessary? Is it good or not good? Is it effective or ineffective? Is it violent or nonviolent and so forth? So I always have to look. In some cases, protest can be very reactionary. I'm thinking about recently we talk about protest against vaccinations protests against wearing masks, or January 6th, protests against people who are protesting, they think the election was stolen. And, uh, and in terms of my own background in civil rights for years in the South, many of the protests were by white supremacists who were protesting efforts to desegregate lunch counters and buses, they were protesting uh, attempts to integrate schools. They were protesting efforts to change what they felt was the true America as a white, male, Christian, so forth, authoritarian society. I mean, other, oh, go ahead. I was to say, on the other hand, the protest I was involved in for civil rights, for voting rights, for and so forth were all necessary for transformative change. So what I would say is, just in relating very quickly, the uh, to me, protest is, as Erica said, a much more general term. Uh, insurrections always involve protest. They tend to be violent uprisings uh, uh, against revolts, against authority, often against government. So I would say insurrections are always forms of protest, but 98% uh, of protests are not insurrections. And so, I mean, certainly legitimacy doesn't lie all on one side of the political spectrum or the other. Um, I mean, to use the January 6th example, I mean, they w were misinformed, obviously, mm -hmm. and they crossed a line and committed some illegal acts, but many of them were there out of a sincere belief, right, mm -hmm. that they were um, upholding the, their patriotic duty. Isn't that right, Erica? Well, I think your question raises the, the question about means and ends. Um, so, you know, a peaceful assembly it is simply a, a method. It's a means, right? It is protected by the Constitution, even if I find uh, personally uh, the particular goals that are being expressed to be abhorrent. Um, so peaceful assembly is, you know, at least legally in this country, always protected. The, the main question then is, 
whether it's legitimate or not depends on um, whether you agree fundamentally with the ends or the demands or the claims that are being made, right? And um, and that's where I think um, these these questions become sometimes more morally complicated. That said, um, you know, I think that most of the people who adhere to um, the philosophy of nonviolence, for example, um, uh, are are trying to align means and ends, right? So they're trying to say that um, that you can't actually be practicing, say, nonviolence if you're using nonviolent means, but you're trying to dispossess, reject, exclude, suppress other people, right? Um, and so that that's where the the means and ends conversation sometimes can blend when we talk about you know core understandings about what's legitimate or the ways that people um, uh, choose to 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 dissent. I mean, sometimes we um, you know mythologize the Boston Tea Party, but that obviously involved property damage. It wasn't really nonviolence, but most of us think it was cat- a catalytic in terms of um, the founding our founding story, and put that into the framework of this, if you can, Doug. Yeah, I think protest itself, that's why I said you you have to look at the particular cases uh, and context. Protest can be very violent. So the challenge uh, to, to some of us who are committed to nonviolent transformation and the many approaches and techniques and methods, means of nonviolent change is uh, how do we relate so, as you said, people who are sincere <laughs> and people who do not accept uh, that nonviolence is an absolute, right? And uh, and this is a challenge. You know, I, for example, that in my Gandhian approach, I've had to deal with about how you deal with terrorists who are not particularly interested in nonviolent dialogue and, you know, that kind of engaging your protest in a transformative way. They just want to kill you, right? So this is a challenge. I think we, and where we, those of us engaged in the topics you're raising today, we live in a very complex world, very contradictory world, and how we have to work together often. We don't always have all of the answers. We don't have a blueprint. Sometimes protests are effective. And in many other cases, they're not effective, right? And so, I mean, that gets at uh, uh, the thrust of a lot of your work, Erica, and what role does violence play in whether peace, peaceful protests are more or less effective in achieving their goals than those that involve violence? And then sort of putting that in the context of American history, I mean, between labor uh, labor strikes and i mean there's been a lot of violence that sought to do um progressive change in the u.s too so i try to weave those together if you can erica yeah so maybe i'll just address the boston tea party as a a great uh yeah great um, kind of portal through which i can respond to this so so the the boston tea party as you mentioned ann is you know it's, it's one of these cases that shows that there's there's certain types of property destruction that in fact are um, performative and that like invite the public into a conversation Um, performative you mean uh, like it's a performance people are putting on a show to demonstrate something exactly okay go ahead yeah i mean it 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 destroyed it destroyed the commodity um temporarily you know causing uh, millions of pounds worth of loss um, but more importantly, it was a symbolic demonstration of the rejection of attacks, right? Um, and uh, there, there are a couple of, of interesting aspects. Um, reportedly, the uh, people who uh, who threw the tea over the side of the uh, ship also um, made sure that they didn't break anything. Um, so they even broke a lock and replaced it uh, on a trunk apparently, because they were exactly trying to be highly discriminating to make it clear what their message was. Um, the the thing that's complicated and complex is that uh, they dressed as um, reportedly Mohawk Indians, yeah. uh, and they did so um, basically to appropriate uh, what was seen as a rebellious um, uh, part of the colonial uh, experience and and doing so, you know, we're practicing a racist 
um, kind of ideology, right? So, so it's all complicated. <laughs> um, at the same time, um, you know, the, 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 this, this case shows something important. Um, one of the things that it shows is that it's less Im- important, um, whether, uh, an action is clearly on the line of nonviolent or violent. And it's more important how the public perceives uh, that method to be is it legitimate is it necessary or is it not right and and so what what my research uh, has found with Maria Stefan and with a variety of other co-authors over the past 15 years um, is that basically um, it is true that there's sort of a generalizable pattern that techniques or methods of resistance that um, are clearly on the line of nonviolent are more likely to create um, a, a, a higher proportion of willingness to participate within the population and that the larger the population becomes who is participating when or sympathetic to a movement, the more likely it is to be able to upset or unsettle the balance of power um, that's upholding the status quo. And that um, that's the reason why we tend to see um, this really well demonstrated empirical pattern over the past 120 years that campaigns that rely primarily barely on unarmed methods and that are therefore very inclusive um, across the population are more likely to win, um, right? Even if they are up against highly repressive regimes or potentially especially when they're up against highly repressive regimes because it makes the job easier of demonstrating um, that they have a good point about what they are claiming. Um, and, uh, you know, once people are in the movement, um, they feel like they have to win um, if if they're going to survive. And so, you know, it, it, it just kind of creates a, a sense of inevitability uh, that then can really shift the political ground and lead to major breakthrough moments. There's a lot to unpack there, but I have to take a little station break first. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today, protest, good citizenship at work. Our guests this afternoon are Doug Allen, Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at the University of Maine, and Erica Chenoweth, Frank Stanton Professor of the First Amendment at the Harvard Kennedy School, and Susan S. and Kenneth L. Wallach, Professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies. Um, You know, this idea that nonviolent protests are more effective, and tying that back to what you were both saying earlier about um, I think what you were saying was that the nonviolent actions create that, 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 I guess, that legitimacy is in the eye of the beholder and that nonviolent protests enhance the aura of legitimacy and therefore invite more participation and broader support. Um, is that sort of the essence of it, Doug, would you say? Uh, yes. Uh, I Whatever could express there. uh does reflect my own values, my own commitments, uh, my own means and ends, and uh, different protests. uh, uh, And so I agree with that. I want to throw in one thing just to to add. that might add a dimension. When you had raised about Boston Tea Party and then Erica talked about property and all that, I want to say that in uh, my approach, nonviolent approach and towards non-cooperation, citizenship, participatory democracy, to me, property, as I understand it, is not simply a thing, right? Property like that. Property is a dynamic relation. And there are those who are propertied. They own and control the means of production, the land, the oil, the factories, the technology, the media, and so forth. And they have a kind of power over those who are property-less, right? And so in my analysis, uh, the way we talk today about commodified, corporatized, uh, uh, financialized property and so forth is violent, It's structurally violent. So I talk about, for example, economic terrorism, corporate terrorism, that in fact defines our basic systemic structures of how we live, that defines our economic and political and legal life. Okay, how do we protest against that in a nonviolent way? 
okay, to change those basic systemic structures that now we talk much more comfortably in the last year or two after George George Floyd, things that we've had all along for hundreds of years, but now we talk about systemic racism, institutionalized. Well, and that's that's an interesting point. I don't know if either of you have read any of the work was one of the citations on our website from Daniel Gillian. And I mean, I've only read a couple of his pieces, but he seems to be making the case that some of these protest street demonstrations and other such actions have the benefit of actually informing the public about issues that they might not have known anything about before and it does seem doesn't it erica and this may be back to your performative you know comment these are performances that are intended to elucidate the issue in the public eye could you comment on that erica Sure. I mean, I think one of the main functions of social movements in general is often that they help to define the issues of our time. They help to set the agenda. They help to write the platforms of uh, candidates running for office. Sometimes they even help to draft the legislation that is um, being put in front of office holders at the local, state or national level. And so, you know, it, it, it is a powerful impact that we can see um, in some cases almost immediately. So I agree totally with what Doug has said. Um, If if you think about the Occupy movement, which so many people uh, seem to define as a failure, but then you look at how many people know today how unequal the world is economically. That can only be attributed to the fact that we had a global uprising in which there was a very simple but compelling frame which was, you know, we are the 99%. And uh, all of a sudden, every single political candidate of every party had to squarely address this issue. Now, of course, they undertake a variety of different uh, cynical ways in which to manipulate the issue to gin up their own constituents, but um, nevertheless, it's on the global agenda. Right. And uh, so I don't think you can uh, so easily dismiss movements that didn't, you know, revolutionize the world in the full, you know, utopian way in which they envision what equality would look like. But um, but boy, do we have to acknowledge that they they shape what we talk about and every movement uh, that's that's kind of come after Occupy, every major movement in the United States, I would argue, has had a very similar impact. Well, I mean, that's it's so interesting because um, you're right. You know, Occupy is generally, you know, talked about as if it was a big leaderless failure that didn't really accomplish anything, but it did change everybody's mindset. So that, and that brings me around to the question that, and I'm going to go back to you, Erica, with this, because in your work, I know you've tried to systematically figure out what makes one successful and one doesn't, but talk about how you tell whether these movements are successful or not. Well, you know, I think that um, in my own research, I have to use fairly narrow um, definitions of success only because I'm comparing such a huge range of cases. So in, in, in my most latest data set, I'm comparing 628 revolutionary campaigns and I'm trying to understand their impacts. So that means I have to sort of apply an arbitrary, uh, concrete distinction about when they're successful and not. And so, um, you know, in, in my own research, um, uh, what I do is I, I look at whether the campaigns achieve what they said they wanted within a year of the peak of their mobilization and whether they had a discernible impact on that outcome. So in other words, if that campaign hadn't happened, we couldn't imagine um, you know, a leadership change or independence or whatever. Um, but I will say um, that um, I think a much more nuanced and helpful way to understand the impacts of movements is to think about them in, in these ways. First, think about uh, tactical outcomes. Second, think about process outcomes. And third, think about strategic outcomes. So the tactical outcomes are, were you able to essentially control what happened at your protest on Saturday? How did it go? Right. (laughs) That's a tactical outcome. 
Then there's a process outcome, which is what were the immediate kind of short-term or medium-term impacts of, of this action? Are you building a base? Is your base better informed? Are they informing others? Are they recruiting others? Are you uh, getting a strong media presence and positive uh, attention from the media? Those are all process goals, but they aren't ends in themselves, right? They're leading to uh, the, the sort of third category, which is the strategic outcome. If you have a strategic goal, what is the way that you'd like the world to be five years from now? Mm-hmm. Um, the strategic outcome is, did it happen, right? <laughs> and so um, uh, many movements don't quite get to the strategic outcomes they want, but in the meantime, they achieve a lot of tactical success and process success. And that's important because, um, like we've been saying, it can shape the public discourse, it can um, set the agenda, and even if um, the, the final outcome is is somewhat less than what uh, the movement would have liked, uh, often they have moved the needle considerably and, in the meantime, built infrastructure uh, to handle the next time uh, when mass mobilization is required. I mean, let's talk about some in American history that have worked that seemed improbable. I mean, we're all sort of raising our eyebrow about Keystone XL, which looked like it was not going anywhere, and now it looks like maybe it did go somewhere. Um, But talk about some others from our history that um, were successful, maybe at the strategic level, and we can, you know, get a little bit more down into the tactical and process stuff in a minute. Do you have some examples at hand, Doug? Yeah, um, well, countless examples. Well, just give a, give one, yeah, a little sample, no, a tasty it, sample. Uh, yeah, no, to me, the whole history of uh, uh, going back to indigenous people, to slavery, to all those years, all those protests, uh, often the unwritten history that we're trying to reconnect with because it's the powerful who have defined the history for us and marginalized or silenced where real change came about and the amazing resiliency. So you look at the history of anti-racist struggles, uh, the history of uh, women's struggles, labor struggles, uh, environmental struggles, indigenous struggles, uh, to me, that's what I connect with. That's where change comes from, uh, uh, the most important source of change. And what gives us hope for the future in terms of how we can try to create uh, a world that, at this point, just that we can survive. But even beyond that, where as human beings we can flourish with freedom and dignity, a sense of justice, of cooperation, of mutuality, and so forth. So I see exciting examples of this all over the country and all over Maine that are going on every single day and that give us some hope. Erica, do you have favorite examples from U.S. history, from our own past, about why this works or how it worked? Yeah, I mean, I I think one of the the most interesting uh, cases that I've encountered is uh, from the 16th century. Um, It was a a group of um, uh, Iroquois women who were essentially fed up with um, the constant warfare um, between different parts of the the nation. Um, And they um, organized a a collective withdrawal of cooperation regarding the preparation of of, uh, moccasins, which they... Um, were responsible for uh, making for warrior men. Um, they also uh, refused to harvest crops and withheld what they called uh, child-making or child-bearing powers mm-hmm. and um, were able to use that sequence of um, non-cooperation to extract for themselves the right to veto um, the war-making decision on war councils. Um, and in fact, um, the Iroquois nation um, then uh, uh, connected with a several hundred year um, confederacy, which is kind of widely known um, and, and uh, enjoyed a, a significant period of relative peace um, in the aftermath of that. Uh, in, in the sort of colonial period, uh, certainly there was an awful lot of violence um, that was happening um, uh, but there was also a, a really important and, as Doug said, often un- misunderstood 
degree of nonviolent resistance that was going on against British imperialism in the colonies. Um, and uh, in fact, if you think about some of the most important elements of um, the story of the American Revolution, whether it's the Boston Tea Party or whether it's the creation and signing of the Declaration of Independence or the holding of constitutional conventions, the creation of alternative um, judicial structures um, and uh, economic cooperatives, tax refusals, tax resistance, um, that's, those, those are not nonviolent methods, right? And and um, basically, uh, there's a powerful letter that was written by John Adams to, to Thomas Jefferson um, in the aftermath of the revolution in which he said, I've heard that there's a historian who's about to write the history of our revolution. I hope he gets it right. As you and I both know, uh, the revolution took place in the minds of the people long before um, the first altercations in Lexington and Concord. Um, and it was because of our political resistance that uh, independence came about. In fact, the war followed essentially um, our independence rather than create. I, I have so, go ahead, Doug. I have so many questions. Go ahead. Yeah, and then we'll get right back just quickly. I was going to say one I could have mentioned that was a great example is that was central to my life for at least 10 years and was seemed so hopeless and was such an incredible victory and largely nonviolent was the anti-apartheid movement. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just incredible. And the success it had uh, with the great victory, uh, even though the long-term vision, as we said, hasn't been realized, but we should never minimize the... Uh, uh, incredible struggle, 90% of which was nonviolent and which was effective. Yeah. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum this afternoon on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Doug Allen, Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at the University of Maine, and Erica Chenoweth, Frank Stanton Professor of the First Amendment at the Harvard Kennedy School, and a Susan S. and Kenneth L. Wallach Professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. Our topic today is protest, good citizenship at work, this show was pre-recorded on June 16th, so we are not taking listener calls at this time. We are interested in your comments, so you can contact us at news at weru.org. Please put democracy form in the subject line. Um, so I want to uh, take, I've got two things I want to do here, but I'll take the first one first, which is um, what, what, you're both alluding to the fact that it's not just street demonstrations, that these kinds of actions can take many different forms street demonstrations strikes occupations boycotts divestments mass non-cooperation disengagement i mean erica what role does it play in the ultimate strategic success for these campaigns to be sort of multi-dimensional and embracing a variety of tactics or does that not matter yeah, that's a great question. Um, sorry, my dog has decided this is the moment. Um, yeah, so um, basically um, movements that tend to over-rely on a single technique like protest, um, I think are less likely to succeed than movements that are able to innovate a variety of methods. And part of this is because protests, as we've been talking about, um, can kind of show a certain degree of popular uh, will behind a particular claim, um, and it has a lot of symbolic power, can build pressure, um, but it doesn't necessarily disrupt the status quo. It's a protected form of you know, legalized uh, political dissent um, in many places in the world, and including in the U.S. for now. Um, and uh, so, you know, there, there's um, a certain degree to which uh, combining other methods like non-cooperation, strikes, stayaways, um, can actually begin to apply uh, a greater amount of disruption um, that um, can begin to really, like I said, unsettle the balance of power and the status quo. Uh, so far, research uh, suggests that uh, strikes are one of the most potent techniques of nonviolent action um, that has been used. Um, they're the most likely to elicit uh, a response immediately from uh, the opponent. Do they sometimes, though, I mean, in our own American history, elicit a violent response, right? 
Absolutely. But, um, you know, uh, the, the sort of modal response uh, for most protests is to simply ignore them. Um, mm-hmm. And so then, you know, the question is, um, you know, for for movements that uh, are prepared to escalate um, and that are making really dramatic or transformative claims, it's almost always the case that the state engages in some coercion. Um, so it's really important uh, to 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 you know recognize that just because a campaign is waging nonviolent struggle does not mean that the state is going to wage nonviolent repression right right like the state wages violent repression it's it's a technique that is risky um, but um, we also know from empirical research that it's less risky than armed struggle we know this that fewer people are killed um, fewer people are uh, become casualties and um, you know the violence uh, uh, it, when it does occur, um, is more likely to actually provide the movement with a moment of demonstrating exactly, as, as Martin Luther King used to say, dramatize the nature of the injustice or sort of unmask the violent nature of the situation in a way that compels others to sympathize with and participate in the movement. Doug, in your experience, talk about this multidimensional aspect, because I know like the apartheid example that you just talked about, some of your own work had to do with divestments. So talk about that multidimensional aspect for a second. Uh, I think uh, that's right. And just to connect, like with street demonstrations, which I see as necessary, but not sufficient in terms of nonviolent activism, What's often forget, forgotten is if street demonstrations or any of these other efforts are effective, how much preparation is necessary before the street demonstration, right? And uh, it's not like, let's just take to the streets. The streets belong to the people. You, I've been in many of those. They're usually a disaster. Uh, but in fact, when they work well, it's because people with care have prepared, they've raised consciousness, they've uh, connected with the media. Uh, This is what King always did ahead of time. So people and uh, and prepared how people react to violence, to reaction, whether it's against strikes or other actions. So in terms of uh, the anti-apartheid work that we did was incredible here in Maine and is often forgotten. We, because we're such a white state, we may be the whitest state in the United States. And the University of Maine and the Board of Trustees, the foundation, the system, we became one of the first 10 universities and systems in the whole United States to divest 100%. And this was $3 million dollars. It was one third of the whole principal portfolio of the system. And it involved people didn't realize that all the banks, financial institutions, uh, of fossil fuel companies, um, the uh, PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, all these companies were invested in apartheid South Africa. Right. And so this was a huge struggle. It was multidimensional. Protests were essential, but they were small part. Uh, they had to be connected. And so uh, part of uh, that nonviolent activism being effective involved patience, a long struggle that took years, a lot of educational work. We had to educate ourselves. We knew nothing about the history of apartheid, of racism, the centuries in South Africa, economic uh cultural, historical, political background of that. Uh, we um, and then had to educate others, raise consciousness, reach out. Uh, we we brought in so many speakers, yeah. South African and our, the fellow we had, Dumasani Kamalo, who was in New York and Brooklyn. OK, I'll just say uh, he came up here five times and spoke to our trustees. After Nelson Mandela was freed, he became the South African ambassador to the United Nations. Yeah. So we had, uh, and there were just finally, there were sit-ins, uh, takeovers of buildings, protests, marches, 
uh, music, theater, art, and all of those things had to be connected. And uh, and still, it was a surprise that we finally won. We were right. uh, victorious, and everyone felt good about that. And I mean, and I, I mean just hearing you talk about that, um, you know, it sounds like a campaign, right? It sounds like a complicated, multi-year, long-term, multi-dimensional campaign that obviously needs sophisticated leadership, continuity, um, you know, and. And Erica, you talked about, um, you know, the tactical, the process and the strategic successes. I mean, somebody has to be thinking about this in a pretty sophisticated way. And then if it's all about building legitimacy, then you have to protect against efforts to undermine that legitimacy, too. So I guess maybe I want to ask that question first. How, how can these movements be discredited by infiltrators, looters, vandals, anarchists, by labeling Antifa and stuff like that? Um, and how can the leaders of these movements protect against some of those um, dangers, Erica? Well, you know, the, the attempt to discredit uh, legitimate protest and dissent as criminal is also as whole as old as our history, right? <laughs> so uh, you look at any any country's history as long as they've been writing the history. Look in the and in, in our ancient texts, and you'll find examples of you know if if you can't win uh, on the claim, then you try to undermine the claimant, right? And so um, regimes that that can't actually win on the argument of who has the legitimate claim or not. Um, often uh, attempt to um, accuse the the protesters of first of all always violence, right? So they'll they'll sort of say, well, these are these are just uh, criminals. They're um, they're ne'er do wells. Um, they are hoodlums, in some cases, right. terrorists, right. right? Yeah, just use use whatever pejorative term, um, and that's just basically a statist. Um, Response. the the second The second thing that they'll they'll do is they usually accuse them of being outsiders, right? They're not us; they're someone else. Uh, they're from outside, outside agitators, right? That's a, a really uh, common trope, um, or a foreign conspiracy, right? Um, and then the 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 next thing that they will tend to do is um, is they tend to minimize and discredit the claim itself, right? So they'll, they'll sort of say people are overreacting or they'll mobilize a counterclaim. Um, so much of the sort of stuff happening around critical race theory right now in the, in the right-wing uh, sphere, um, I think is a good example of this attempt to sort of counter-mobilize and a competing narrative that, um, that appeals to constituency and allows them to increase their enthusiasm um, and and shut down this this otherwise legitimate conversation. Um, so, you know what we know from research that's um, that's examined public opinion and public attitudes toward protest and protest uh, tactics and protest policing is that um, you know uh, when the media describes an event as say clashes break out or a violent protest breaks out between protesters and police. Um, they generally assume it's the protesters who were engaging in the violence, right? Um, when actually, if you read the story, it, it often is the case that the protesters were not engaging in violence, but there was, you know, a sort of unprovoked um, uh, scuffle or something like that that then um, becomes the main headline. Um, and uh, so a lot of this is the way that the media kind of uh, reports on events and the way that that um, informs the public imagination. Um, but, you know, uh, I think I would just um, encourage people always to look at the who, what, where, when, and why, um, and to try to avoid the sort of um, uh, either headlines in, in, in mainstream news or um, the way that, that politicians will try to um, re-narrate something that's happened in a way that is conducive to their own political gains. Can the leaders of these movements, Erica, plan for um, different strategies to um, counter some of that? Absolutely. There's a great uh, uh, open source handbook that was put together by a scholar named Brian Martin, who's an Australian um, scholar and activist. And it's about uh, managing backfire um, or preventing back uh, or uh, kind of planning for backfire. And, you know, a couple of the things that are commonly done is 
making sure that the people who are speaking about the movement and to the movement's experience are very comfortable with narrative discipline, which means that they don't kind of take the bait and uh, kind of try to relitigate what happened or whatever, but they stick very much to their message and just say, here's why we're here. We're, you know, we're actually here protesting against injustice and here's what the injustice is and why, um, you know, we, we are here. Um, the, the second thing is making sure that they have their own independent uh, documentation of what has happened uh, so that they can, if they need to, uh, rely on that both legally and in the media coverage of an event. And then uh, the third thing is to um, to make sure that people understand that this is an anticipated response by the state so that nobody's caught off guard by it. Like that it, it's sort of like uh, it's, it's a victory if the state cares about you enough that they begin to, <laughs> you know, try to discredit you. It shows that what you're doing is actually threatening um, and uh, maybe working. Um, and so, uh, you know, finding a way to uh, to make sure that people see those types of responses in the broader context so that they're not demoralized um, when they're participating in the movement, I think is an important part of, of what leaders do. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Doug Allen, Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at the University of Maine, and Erica Chenoweth, Frank Stanton, Professor of the First Amendment at the Kennedy School, Harvard Kennedy School, and a Susan S. and Kenneth L. Wallach, Professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies. This program was pre-recorded on June 16th. No listener calls are being taken. So we're talking talking about um we've talked about th- that this kind of protests and demonstrations and um uh mass movements have been part of american history since before we were america and that is part of how democracy presses forward um i want to ask you both to talk a little bit if you're familiar with it about the anti-protest legislation that's moving through some 40 34 states and the impact that some of these laws may have on free speech and the right to assemble. Um, what, what do you know about this, Doug, and what, what can you comment on? Um, I don't think that I have any particular insights that, uh, other than what is happening and is reported, uh, as always happens in reaction to progressive movements protests for change, uh, protest against uh, inequality and sexism and racism, the environmental destruction. Uh, and um, is that you have a backlash. And that's what's taking place throughout the United States, whether it's uh, uh, in order to criminalize legitimate protests, to suppress a vote, to, um, in fact, to uh, suppress um, any democratic participatory change in trying to create a more inclusive, more just uh, America. So uh, this it's very dangerous what's happening, especially because uh, a lot of these things are on the state level. And so uh, for myself, we just... Um, we hope that we're going to get some national support. We'll have a better Justice Department and some better leadership now that we'll try to exercise. But for me, the main thing is to try to build in our communities locally uh, democratic uh, movements, uh, participatory movements that see engaged citizenship is uh, how we develop, how we live with dignity and flourish as human beings. And we try to counter those anti, uh, those suppression of protest movements and try to have some hope and confidence that if we work together, that in fact, we can be the stronger transformative uh, movement. Erica, I'd like to give you a chance to comment, too, on the anti-protest legislation that's coming up in all of these states. And um, I mean, some of it's quite radical. Well, I agree with Doug that they have to be taken in context of the overall kind of assault on democratic rights and institutions that are taking place in states in which, um, frankly, the GOP is in control of the legislature. 
Um, and, you know, I think, like Doug said, this is a, a very straightforward example of backlash. So let's look at what the focus is on. First, it's on um, criminalizing what is um, definitely examples of peaceful protests and peaceful assembly. Um, it is protecting, in some states, protecting people who want to drive their cars into crowds of protesters, um, it, it, which is essentially authorizing extrajudicial killing of protesters by citizens, by civilians. Um, the, 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 the onslaught also includes, as Doug said, voter suppression, uh, gerrymandering, but also I think very, and in a very sinister way, um, the changing of laws about who election administrators are and should be, um, which we saw to be such an important, crucial pillar of our democratic institutions during the 2020 elections. If you had a couple of people um, not in those seats in Georgia and in Pennsylvania and elsewhere, uh, Nevada, Arizona, um, you might have seen very different outcomes. Well, the GOP learned that. And in those states, those GOPs have decided that they're going to make sure that they have people on side um, in those positions in the future. Um, we, you know, we, so, so it's a, a total consolidation of power in the places in which um, they have majority legislative majorities and want to keep them. And, and so, you know, what, what I know is, is exactly in line with what Doug has said, which is that, you know, uh, in, in research about, uh, the decline of democracies, what political scientists like Robert Kaufman and Steph Haggard have found is that once the institutions start to crumble, um, and once politicians start violating the norms, the sort of unspoken guardrails of democracy, the institutions cannot come back and save us, actually. Um, that the only thing that has been found to prevent kind of weakened democracies from going into full-blown authoritarianism in the next few years is the mobilization of civil society. So we are basically the best hope of democracy, those of us who are civically engaged. And I'm, I'm talking about this in a, in a cross-partisan way. People who take an interest in the future of the country and want to find ways uh, to solve our problems and are actively participating in making sure um, that those solutions come about as a result of fair and representative processes um, are the ones that basically bring democracies back from the brink of total illiberal backsliding, right? And so um, that's a well-documented phenomenon in, in a recent book that, that Kaufman and Haggard wrote. I think that we're seeing it exactly play out here and that if we look around the world at other countries that have tipped into um, authoritarianism, full-blown authoritarianism of the past 15 years. Um, what is clear is that there were assaults on civil society that civil society could not rebound from and was not able to, uh, therefore, kind of deter the, the, the backsliding. So it, it is, to me, you know, and the, the whole kind of um, uh, impetus for this episode is, you know, protest. Is it, uh, you know, should we do it? I mean, I, I think the, the history speaks for itself. Our empirical record speaks for itself that it's, it's an absolutely core and essential part of not only the life of a democracy, but the survival of a democracy for people to uh, feel as if um, a variety of methods of nonviolent resistance are within their toolkit. They know how to use it. They know with whom to use it and uh, for which types of goals that can protect our fundamental institutions. Well, we've um, almost gone our full hour. We're running a little bit out of time now. So I want to give each of you maybe two or three minutes to sort of sum up the essential question is protest a legitimate form of participatory democracy could it be in some moments as important as voting and why should citizens um, engage in this type of activity when the outcome is legitimate and just so i mean it's a big question um, but take a couple of minutes doug and give us your answer and then we'll come back to erica yeah well i would say yes uh uh that uh protest is necessary as part of engaged citizenship and demo, uh, participatory democracy. Uh, sometimes it is much more important than voting. Again, I always contextualize. I support voting, and uh, but I think the notion that voting is the only way to bring about change and to have a voice is very narrow. 
and often disempowering. And often voting can express the tyranny of the majority, as John Stuart Mill and others throughout have pointed out. And we know, even in the dramatic example of Hitler in Germany, you know, voting can be legal and it doesn't have to be just. And it doesn't have to bring about any of the kind of nonviolent transformation we want. So what I would say is protest is necessary but uh, as part of our toolkit, but people should think of other things that aren't protest and aren't voting. Those We have to explore all those. There are lots of ways that uh, really involve how you build sustainable communities, how you work cooperatively in terms of mutual empowerment, how you deal with oppression and poverty and lack of health care and lack of educational opportunities, how you create a positive, not just against protesting against, but positive life-affirming alternatives to the kind of hierarchical structures of domination that are outside of what we consider protest and outside of what we consider voting and those those also important ways that we can develop as good citizens. Thanks, Doug. Um, Erica, wrap it up for us a little bit and put protest in the context of good citizenship. Yeah, I, I like what Doug just said, and I'll just add one thing, which is that um, when when uh, Mahatma Gandhi uh, developed his theories of satyagraha. Um, you know, there were two co-equal parts. One is non-cooperation with injustice, and the other was the construction of an alternative, a just alternative. And I think that um, what we all see on the front pages of the news when we see spectacular photos of people power movements is the first part. We see non-cooperation with injustice. We see protest. Um, But what is harder, and it takes patient time and relationship building and good communication and the building of trust and the strengthening of network, and the supporting of one another, as Doug called it, life-affirming work, is the constructive program. That's the one that um, that needs a lot of attention, I think, right now to get ourselves out of a lot of the messes that we're in in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, I, thank you both. And uh, this has really been an interesting conversation that I hope will motivate some of our listeners to take a more active role when these issues and events come to neighborhoods near them in the um in the years ahead. So we are just about out of time, and I want to thank you to our guests this afternoon, Douglas Allen, Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at the University of Maine. He's author of the 2019 book, Gandhi, After 9-11, Creative Nonviolence and Sustainability, and he's co-advisor of the Maine Peace Action Committee. Also with us was Erica Chenoweth, Frank Stanton, Professor of the First Amendment at the Harvard Kennedy School, Susan S. and Kenneth L. Wallach, Professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study and author of the new book, Civil Resistance, What Everyone Needs to Know. We're so pleased to have you both on the show with us this afternoon. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM, streaming live at WERU.org. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic for further reading in this area or to learn uh, about other shows in our series you can subscribe to our podcast at lwvme.org and you can email us at downeast at lwvme.org thank you all very much we'll see you next month Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Collins Center for the Arts, presenting chamber music by the Rolston String Quartet live on Sunday, December 19th. CollinsCenterForTheArts.com. Welcome to 2021 Talks, where we are following our democracy in historic times. Any interest that you're paying on a loan will be increased if, in fact, We did not lift the debt ceiling. The House of Representatives voted early Wednesday morning to bump the nation's debt limit to nearly $31 trillion. The measure passed 221 to 209 and now goes to President Joe Biden for his signature. 
Politico reports the move, which increased the debt limit by $2.5 trillion, will carry the U.S. into 2023 without the need to raise the borrowing cap further. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said if the measure had failed, the U.S. could have defaulted on its loans, resulting in widespread economic fallout. Even the discussion of it a few years ago lowered our credit rating, the United States credit rating, and that was not a good thing for our economy. Meanwhile, Congress is working on other items on its holiday to-do list, including the Build Back Better framework, which Pelosi says she's hopeful will get through both chambers by year's end. But Republicans have many reservations about the program. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina says the complexities in the framework's child care provisions would drive up costs and limit options for families. This is literally an attempt to fundamentally transform what it means to take care of your child in the place you want to send your child. Democrats say the bill would ensure no family pays more than 7% of their income on child care. The Senate has passed the 2022 National Defense Authorization Act, an annual bill to set spending priorities for the Pentagon and the armed forces. Among many other things, the nearly $770 billion package includes an additional $50 million in U.S. military aid to Ukraine as Russian